Welcome to The Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you level up your leadership and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. Welcome back to another episode of The Athletics of Business podcast. I am your host and CEO of the Molitor Group, Ed Molitor. And man, am I thrilled to introduce you to today's special guest, today's unique guest to the Athletics of Business podcast, Ray Rothrock. And Ray is the CEO of Red Seal, whom he joined in February of 2014. I want to tell you a little bit about Ray's journey and what makes it so unique and why I'm so thrilled to have him on this podcast. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a, a snapshot of what we're going to talk about on this episode and why you want to listen to it in its entirety. Prior to Red Seal, Ray was a general partner at Benrock. As a matter of fact, his office was at 30 Rock, uh, one of Red Seal's founding investors. At Benrock, he invested in 53 companies, including over a dozen in cybersecurity, including Bantu, PGP, PQ, Imperva, Cloudflare, Cetera, and Shape Security. He is on the board of Checkpoint Software Technology Limited, an original Benrock investment and teammate, both of which are Tel Aviv-based companies. Ray is also a member of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Corporation Board, a thought leader in cybersecurity and a longtime investor in the sector. He was a participant in the White House Cybersecurity Summit held at Stanford University in February of 2015, and Ray has provided testimony to U.S. House Representatives Subcommittee on Energy and Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Now, this is what's really, really unique. Ray holds a BS. We're doing all this, this talk about cybersecurity. Ray holds a BS in nuclear engineering from Texas A&M University, and it doesn't get much better than that. He also holds an MS in nuclear engineering from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and an MBA with distinction from the Harvard Business School. And one of the things we're going to talk about is Ray's experience and his mentor, Wayne Stark, uh, at Texas A&M back in the late 70s, who sort of set the tone for Ray to be able to take that right turn, as he mentions, and move to California and change industries after Three Mile Island hit. And we're also going to talk about the importance of the mission, of tenacity, of, of having fun and, and finding joy and, and celebrating successes with your people and having that camaraderie uh, in the workplace. We're going to talk about the significance of education in Ray's life and how he's trying to pay that forward with his legacy uh, and, and what education means to uh, today's youth and to our future. And Ray's going to share a little bit about his uh, keynote speech, his motivational speech, Compound Interest, which is is phenomenal. And obviously, we'll talk about Ray's book, which is Digital Resilience. And, and we'll talk about resilience and what that means to Ray and what that means to us and what we do um, every single day. And, and we're going to delve into a quote Ray leaves us with at the end of the episode, which is, take only photographs and leave only footprints, which I love. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode half as much as I enjoyed recording it. Ray, thank you so much for joining us on the Athletics of Business podcast. I, I cannot tell you how humbled and fired up I am to have you with us today. Well, thank you, Ed. I'm thrilled to be here. Looking forward to it. 
Well, let's just jump right into it and share with us your journey going all the way back to your days at Texas A&M and, and the career path um, that you have uh, taken. Oh, my goodness. That's, <laughs> I don't think we have enough time, but... Uh, we'll make time. Yeah. Tech, tech, no, Texas A&M. So I, I, I grew up in Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, was uh, the youngest son of two in a classic... Uh, middle-class American family. My parents were World War II generation, depression babies. So going to college was a really big deal. In fact, uh, my father uh, worked very hard. Uh, he was played, paid by the hour, but worked Sundays in order to make and save enough money to send his boys to school. So we did. And uh, Texas A&M was pretty transformative for me. Uh, I really didn't know much about it back then. I don't think many 18-year-olds know really what college is all about. And uh, when I got there, I, I learned about, uh, you know, I, I, well, let me back. I wanted to be an engineer and Texas A&M had a great engineering program. And so there I went. But while I was there, uh, I, I got picked up by a guy named Wayne Stark. Wayne Stark's a pretty famous Aggie. Mm -hmm. He's no longer with us, but there are tens of thousands of us Aggies that we call ourselves Starkies. These were the kids that he personally tapped on the shoulder and said, you're probably a leader. Why don't you come join my group over here at the Memorial Student Center and off we go. So I was one of those Starkies. And what was, what was magical about, about uh, Mr. Stark, and, and I, there were many mentor elements that he provided, was he challenged us. He challenged me to uh, add on to my curriculum and to take a liberal arts courses, not just the engineering courses. I was a pretty good student. Um, and so I did. And that broadened my horizons. And then he, once he, once he knew he had you sort of hooked, <laughs> he'd say, now you need, you need to go to graduate school. And not only that, you need to go to graduate school outside of Texas. Mm. And so he made a really big deal. He pushed a lot of us to go to Harvard and Chicago and uh, Stanford and MIT and everything else. So I did that. And it's interesting having, you know, growing up in that neighborhood in Fort Worth and going to a Texas school. We think that that's the whole world and it revolves around it until you land elsewhere. And I think, Ed, you know that you are where you are and you've done what you've done. But it's a it, it it's hard to believe until you experience it. And but it was a guy like Stark who uh, gave us the tools, gave us the confidence and encouraged us to lead. And so uh, that that's sort of how I got started. So I went to MIT, became a nuclear engineer worked for five years in the power industry, and then the industry began to fall over as a result of the Three Mile Island. And along about then, Apple Computer launched this thing called an Apple II. <laughs> I bought one, fell in love with it, and literally, literally moved to California in 1981, uh, leaving whatever I couldn't get in the car on the curb and drove out here and without a job. And I've been here ever since, for the most part. Uh, but I was with a couple of failed companies. That's a new experience for a kid from Texas. Sure. Companies don't fail in those days. Think about it. I mean, it just wasn't part of the world. And uh, I got on with Sun, and then at Sun, I learned about venture capital, and I went to Harvard Business School. And uh, from there, I became a VC, a very successful VC. I uh, won a couple of awards. I was the chairman of the National Venture Capital Association. All leadership positions as I moved through life. I my wife jokes. She says, well, there you go again. You're going to join this board and they're going to make you chairman. And that usually does happen. Right. Um, and I, you know, I've always asked myself why. And I, th I think yeah, it could be a lot of reasons, but, um, you know, you got to listen before you talk and you, you got to 
you got to think before that before you open your mouth. And if you if you surround yourself with smart, interested people who care and have mutual interests, you'll get to the right decision. And you shouldn't rush things. And right. and um, I don't know. That, that, I didn't mean to answer everything, but that's my career. And so now I'm the leader of a small cybersecurity company here on the West Coast, 50 million. That's small by most standards. Right. And uh, I'm on a mission here to save uh, save us from cyber threats, one company at a time. Well, talk a little bit about what we'll we'll get back to the leadership in your journey. Yeah. I, I want to go back to but talk a little bit about what you're doing right now because you know, like you said, what out there they consider a small company. It's it's wildly and massively successful, and the the work you do is so critical. So, can you share that with us? Yeah, sure. So my company's called Red Seal. Uh, it's about 15 years old. Uh, I actually started this company when I was at Venrock. And as it's typical with a lot of VC uh, deals, you, we're always early before the market really uh, needs whatever it is that you've invested in. Uh, so I, I retired from Venrock after 25 wonderful years, and uh, uh, Red Seal needed some help. So I was called in to give it some help. And But what what was special about that moment, Ed, was that the Target attack, remember Target in 2013, Christmas time, they mm-hmm. had a cyber attack. It was very deft. It was a, a defining event for our industry. Right. And that, that attack really revealed to me that all these investments we had made were, were not working as well as they should. And then I got to thinking about, well, what, what, what will make it work? And uh, I stumbled across an article by some guys at McKinsey and physics. Anyway, long story short, uh, what Red Seal does is to understand every element of your network, every piece of equipment, every router, every switch, everything. And it's kind of like a building. When you walk into a building, um, there's doors and elevators and, and, and uh, windows and, and compartments and all that sort of stuff. And we put labels on doors. and all that. In the cyber world, we don't have any of that. We don't have any map. We don't have any way to know where, where things are going. And we depend on these engineers to do it and do it right and do it perfectly. Well, we're humans. We make mistakes. And so we're very vulnerable because of these mistakes. I don't know if you've ever been out here to San Jose and seen the Westchester Mystery House. Well, most networks look like the Westchester Mystery House. They're mm-hmm. just doors and things that go to nowhere. Mm-hmm. And um, my software sorts that out. And, if, and that gives you a fighting chance. If I know what, if I know what my world looks like, then I can defend it. And that's what Red Seal does. So I got in here, made some improvements to the product, introduced this concept of measurement of resilience, and have been, uh, we have 250 customers today. We did about 50 million last year, and we're growing, you know, 25, 30% a year. So um, it's, it was technology that was sort of intended for nerdy PhD types in the mid-2000s. But today, it's really meant for everybody because everybody needs to, everybody needs a Google map of their network. And that's what we create for you. Right. So, which that segues nicely into your book, Digital Resilience. Can you tell us about that book and how that really is for? Yeah. Yeah. That book is uh, Digital Resilience. I wrote it uh, in 2018 and uh, published it in 2018. And uh, one of the, one of the problems uh, with cybersecurity, it's, it's, it's a very technical, deeply technical subject. I call it gobbledygook. Everyone laughs at me when they use that term, but it is. It's technical gobbledygook. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to an executive, uh, a CFO, a COO, a VP of something, this or that, uh, they, they, they look at you, they get this, we call it at A&M, we call it Nego. My eyes glaze over. Yeah. And because um, they don't understand. So I said, somebody needs to write a book that explains cyber with real world everyday examples. And so I did. 
So I start with the target attack. I boil it down, make it simple, and I go through what is special about our world today, what this digital revolution is all about, but more how to relate it. Here's a relationship. This will be real short and simple. So you're in a building. You've got sprinkler systems overhead. You've got a fire alarm on the wall. You've got a fire extinguisher and all that sort of stuff. And those are there because the government said you got to build a building that way. Uh, does anyone expect that room you're in, Ed, to catch on fire or the room I'm in to catch on? No. no. We don't expect it to catch on fire. We wouldn't sit here if we did. But we put sprinkler alarms in it, didn't we? So that's, that's called being ready for the unexpected. That's called thinking about what might happen. Hmm. That's what has not happened in the world of cyber, and that's what my book's about. Thinking about what could happen will help us improve our cyber systems and our digitalization of our industries and our companies and our lives, and we just have to do that. If we don't do that, we're just doomed, and um, that's what the book's about, but it's, it's a non-technical book. It's meant for you know, a high schooler, a CEO, uh, you know, a sports coach. Well, and I, I, you know, I remember when I first got the book, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to understand anything in here just because of what you just said. I mean, I have no very little technical background, but it is so self-explanatory. And the way you just, that analogy you just provided was, was awesome. Now I have to ask, can you, can you bring us back to Venrock? And after you get your master's at Harvard, uh, where Venrock, you know, tell us about that and the role that played in your career. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, Venrock is the Rockefeller Family Venture Capital Group. It started in 1939, and I joined in 1988. Venrock, like I say, it was Rockefeller Capital, uh, the Rockefeller brothers, John D. Rockefeller and his sons. And um, when I joined, it was still Rockefeller. And uh, so it was a pretty prestigious firm. It had done Apple and Intel and many other great companies from the 70s. And um, our mission was to find interesting people with great ideas and enable them to create great solutions to problems or whatever it is. So we had a very healthy uh, computer practice. We had a very healthy healthcare practice. We had a very healthy uh, sort of capital equipment uh, practice. And uh, the Rockefellers weren't so interested. Of course, they're interested in making money, aren't we all? But but it wasn't about how fast we could do it, but it was how big it could be. And that's a slightly different thing. And I really enjoyed that because I could invest in a long-term project that might change the world, might save the world from something if I wasn't artificially held. Well, you can only be in it for five years and then you got to get out. No. So while I, so I did a bunch of deals, very traditional deals that lasted anywhere from five to 10 years. I had seven IPOs out of the 53 investments that I made. And um, one of the investments is still alive today. It's called Tri-Alpha Energy in Southern California. And it is a 20-year investment. And uh, that is an unusual thing in venture capital today. Most people are in and out as quickly as they can to make whatever money they can. Uh, the Rockefellers wanted us to invest in things that could change the world. And uh, there's Lawrence Rockefeller, who's really the founder, the actual principal that founded it, uh, has a whole book about saving the world. Not well, It was a little bit about saving the world. It was environmentalism and sustainability. He was writing about this stuff at the 50s uh, when it wasn't so cool. So anyway, uh, that really uh, it takes courage to, uh, to, uh, to make a bet like that. It, does. it takes a lot of uh, risk balancing between what's possible and what will hurt you or cause you to fail. Uh, it, cause, it makes you really evaluate the people that are leading the project. So over that time, uh, those 53 deals, and I was participated in about 400 total that the firm did in the 25 years I was there. Um, I met a lot of folks and uh, have a lot of pattern recognition, which is what I think is key to being a good investor. 
And I think pattern recognition is a key element of leadership as well. So, uh, and because uh, I was good and I was careful and my investments worked out very well and I'm just whoever I am, but the industry elected me to be the chairman of it. And so in 2012 and 2013, uh, I, I, I ran, I didn't run the industry. I led the industry. Okay. And there's always something changing, whether it's tax laws in Washington or regulations or just whatever. There's always something that, that you got to help the industry lead its way through. Well, and here's, so you talk about pattern recognition, but yet you're in this industry where the pace and range of change is unlike anything we've ever seen. How do, uh-huh. how do you, and, and, and with the pattern recognition in people as you lead them, and, and how do you go about doing that and identifying that? Gosh. Um, Boy, I you know I don't I don't know how I do it. Uh, I have a pretty good memory, but um, you know you when you see something not work, you need to ask yourself what happened. And when you see something that works, you should ask yourself why did it work. And uh, you have to be reflective. If you're not a you know if you're just a sort of go forward transactional person without reflection, you can transact transact your way through life and make a lot of mistakes. And who cares? But if you always stop and assess what changed or what was the purpose or what was the reason why success or failure occurred, then I think you, you, you get very, you get multiplication. And in fact, I, I, uh, I have a little motivational speech I sometimes uh, give. It's called compound interest. Compound interest is the most powerful mathematical formula ever invented by a man. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's because, you know, if what I learned this year, I apply it to next year's activities I get a compounding effect. And if I apply it the year after, I get another compounding effect. Whereas if I'm just in a transaction mode, I haven't learned anything. And so it's flat. I don't really grow. I don't really change. I don't learn the patterns. So it's, uh, it's, it's a, you got to be reflective. You, you got to have some humility. Uh, you also got to be a little bit of a stubborn sometimes um, because when you know you're right or you can prove you're right and you can't really convince the others, uh, you got to somehow you know, battle your way through it. Right, right. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a wonderful conversation on the phone and, and I asked you what drives you. And you said, you, you mentioned two things. One mission, which we just talked about. The second thing yeah. you talked about was tenacity. Can you talk into that a little bit? Sure, yeah. Well, tenacity is uh, really, really important, really huge. It's so easy to become despondent if things don't work out like you want. And uh, so tenacity is, as you know, it's the ability to stick with it. And you can only stick with it if you believe whatever you're working on is a good cause. Um, it may cost you a little more money. It may take you a little longer in time. Every startup company suffers that. It takes longer, costs more. So you have to have a, a belief and a gut, a grit in your personality that what you're doing is important. Maybe it's just to you, but that's fine. Uh, but that you'll get it done. And that tenacity matters. I, I, when I was in business school, uh, it didn't take my classmates very long to realize they didn't want to be in my study group because we get together at three o'clock on Saturday afternoon and at seven o'clock is like time to go drink beer. <laughs> I said, no, 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 we're not, we're not quite done yet. We're not quite done. And I drive people to 10 or 11 o'clock and I yeah. found myself alone more than once on a Saturday <laughs> night. Maybe, maybe that's a little too revealing, but, but sticking to it, finishing the job. Uh, one of the bit, here's a pattern recognition example for you. One of the telltales uh, a potential problem in a person who's claiming to be a leader is that they don't finish something. You recognize that by looking at their resume, or if there are gaps on the resume they don't want to talk about. These are things that signal to you that, well, maybe this person didn't quite, you know, isn't really able to drive to the conclusion. 
and you and you can probe that and find out why. And I'm more right than wrong about that. Uh, when people put, well, I took coursework towards this or this or this, that's just fluff. Right. But why did you take the coursework? What was your goal? What did you intend to do with that coursework? You know, and then people sort of fall flat on that question. What What have been the keys? You, I mean, success at your level is is pretty amazing and especially over how long you've sustained it right and what have been the keys to your success and the evolving if you will i mean you started off as a nuclear engineering major at texas a&m and you know here we are today talking about venture capitalists and and, and leadership yeah oh man i <laughs> first of all having no first of all having fun yeah um uh, you, you can't you can't be tenacious and stay with something very long if you're not having fun. Uh, and I think fun comes in many many forms. Uh, it's not just playing a game, although that's a good way, or playing cards or whatever golf. Whatever. Those are cool things to do. But there's also the funness of uh, watching an organization succeed, watching a team accomplish something. Um, I always celebrate uh, when my engineers put out a product on time and it works and all that, we, we always celebrate that and we have some fun and, um, we, and we talk about what we learned and what we didn't learn. And we, we, we sort of share, it's, you know, it's not quite a kumbaya moment, but it, it, right. it is a little bit about sharing what, what it gets done. And, and they know that's coming, you know, three weeks before the deadline and they're not quite finished and they're working 20 hours a day on something. And I'll walk the hall and I'll see them and, you know, say, you know, I know it's really hard, but just hang in there. We're going to, we're going to get to this. We're going to conclude. We're going to have a party, but it's that fun. It's that, it's that uh, gauntlet uh, fun. We're not getting shot at in a foxhole somewhere, but we are accomplishing a goal together. And there is a great sense of camaraderie and good camaraderie is fun. It's fun to succeed with people. And uh, that's, that's a big driver for me. And, And I've just, you know, my wife will tell you it was stunning to her that I gave up my four, uh, my five years of education in nuclear engineering, my five years of a professional nuclear engineer. I gave up 10 years of my life. I just made a right turn and moved to California. <laughs> and she just, she's marvelous by that. And I go, yeah. well, you know, it, it wasn't getting, it wasn't getting more fun. It was getting less fun. Right. And I know myself well enough that I got to be motivated by something. And so I made that right turn. Which, and you, when you got out to California, it wasn't quite Silicon Valley yet either. Uh, No, it wasn't. (laughs) Good question there. Uh, It it wasn't Silicon Valley till there was a, a, I I give National Geographic a credit for uh, naming it. 1982, I think it was, they had a cover story about Apple and Intel and Steve Jobs and Gordon Moore, uh, all these guys. And uh, they called it Silicon Valley because in those days it was mostly about computers and chips. Right. I mean, that's all that software right. was kind of a add on. And so they, they gave it that name. And of course it was just kind of Cupertino and Santa Clara. And now it's the entire friggin' peninsula and you name it. Um, but it wasn't, it was uh, venture capital. Sand Hill road didn't exist. I, well, I think the street existed, but the concept of it didn't exist. Venture right. capital was tiny. In fact, when I joined the industry in 1988, it was only a billion dollars in size today. It's a hundred billion. So it's really changed a lot in the last 30, 35 years since I moved out here. Okay. And, you know, speaking of venture capitalists, you, you, you said something to me in our phone conversation about always taking the meeting. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, you bet. That's a, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, 
When I was a young associate at Venerock in New York City, I worked at 30 Rock on the 55th floor, a nice address. It became more prestigious with the TV show, but it was a great place to work even then. Right. And um, when an entrepreneur we, we had engaged, you know, uh, Mr. Rockefeller believed that if an entrepreneur uh, spent the time to uh, work up the business plan, in those days it was paper, it came in the mail, uh, that they deserved an answer. So we would respond to every single one of them. And sometimes, and usually we said no. But sometimes you say, please come see us. We'd like to meet you. And, and or sometimes we go see them. But if they came to see us, it's like 30 Rock, New York City, and they're coming from Dallas or Chicago or, or California or something. It was hard. And and I and so I was at the beginning worried about that. And one and my senior partner said, no, 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 Ray. He says, if they want to come see you, take the meeting. Take every meeting you're offered. And I said, why? And they said, because you never know when someone like Steve Jobs is going to walk in the door. You just don't know until you know. Mm -hmm. And he's so right. And I guarantee you, in every one of those meetings, you learn something. Uh, you you get now another view on another human being. You've spent some time with them. Maybe you have a little uh, food with them. You break a little bread. Um, but you learn something about their industry. You learn how they think. You learn how to analyze what they're saying. Uh, one of my other partners said, every meeting, when you finish it, take two minutes. And make yourself a T-chart. What were the three pros, the three cons, and what's the next step? Do that every meeting, and you will never waste time. And he was so right. And I still do that. Um, I, I, I write the three pros, three cons, and usually it's uh, no further action. Or, you know, thank them for their time and move on. Right. Um, so it's a big deal that way. And um, it's paid handsomely. In fact, so handsomely, I take these meetings and then we'll say, no, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Years later, they'll say, gosh, do you remember when I was in your office in 1989? Yeah. And I go, well, not really, but, <laughs> you know, yeah. thank you for, and, but, but they keep That's bringing phenomenal. it back because, yeah. yeah, because you, you, you were, you weren't a jerk, you know, you were just like, you know, your mother would be proud of you right? <laughs> if, you, if you were polite to people, right? Which is, which yeah. is big, which is huge. We want our mothers to be proud of us, correct? We do. I think so. Yes, we do. So talk a little bit about, if you could, you know, the impact you've had on people and, and you know, paying it forward with leadership and, yeah. and being a star yeah. kid at Texas A&M and, and what that's meant to you and, and what you're real intentional about as you help develop people. Yeah, uh, boy, that's, that's a big question, Ed. Um, so I, I'm a huge believer in education. Uh, education set me free, set me on a path. Uh, Jefferson had it right, right? Uh, an educated populace makes for a very healthy democracy. Mm -hmm. And and, and and because it was, it was, I don't know, because it was so liberating to me and gave me opportunities that I had no idea existed, uh, I'm a huge supporter. So I uh, am very philanthropic with regard to scholarships, professorships, things like that. In fact, uh, quick story, at Texas A&M in, in 1973, there was no civilian music program you had to be in the band and in the core in the core yeah and in night and so i'm i'm now a venture capitalist a successful one in 1999 i called up Texas a and i said do you have a music program and they said no and i said well you need one so mm. i doubt it uh it required uh the legislature to pass <laughs> the uh, curriculum for the school and now there's a huge music program at texas a&m that civilians take choral instrumental theory everything um so that was essentially opening a door, giving the kids who came to that school music. I was one of those because there was no outlet otherwise. Right. Um, so I am very big on enabling uh, kids. They are our future. Uh, 
as you and I once were, um, the ability to see. So uh, I live in California. I work pretty aggressively with the Aggie network out here, the Aggie entrepreneurial network out here. I invite leaders from Texas A&M. My, my, my next stage, if you will, in leadership is A&M has tremendous values and it's a, a great education. It's a land grant school. Its mission is to serve the state of Texas. But the world has changed. Texas is no longer this isolated thing down there like Illinois at the University of Illinois or whatever. But we have something special at Texas A&M. And my mission is to help students who want to get out of Texas. So uh, me and some other Starkeys endowed a, a Northeast trip program where we put 20 kids on a plane. They go for a week. Uh, and they visit University of Chicago, Harvard, Stanford, M- uh, not Stanford, uh, Harvard, Northwestern, MIT, Yale. They go to the professional schools, business, medical, law, uh, and grad schools in some and other grad schools in some cases. So we put together a program for that. So the kids, you have to apply. You have to be, you know, you have to say, why do I want to do this? And again, it's just opening a window. It's giving them a view of a bigger world. So I've done that. And uh, these are things that, that that I press on all the time. Whenever I give a little talk, uh, I was written. So at A&M in the business school, there's this thing called the Titans. These are the top students. These are the mm-hmm. star players in the finance and account. So I just gave a little commencement speech down there uh, recently about my compound interest theory and, um, uh, and how that affects people, not just your bank account. Right. And so, you know, just trying to get in front of people and show them that, you know, look, go back to your neighborhood. Fantastic. Help your, you know, but if you really want to, you have an opportunity to impact the world in a a way you had never imagined. You need to kind of, you know, go north of the Red River uh, or east of the Sabine and uh, go check it out. You might you might like what you find. It's not for everybody, but it's for somebody. That was Stark's message. And I've kind of tried to amplify it with my time and my uh, treasure. Well, and that was going to be my next my next question. You know, we just uh, I just had a, a leadership event down at Texas A&M, and and it was um, endorsed by May School Business Center for Executive Development, and just an amazing place. And you know, the the next question I was going to ask you was um, with with Wayne not just encouraging you, but telling you to, to, you know, kind of spread your wings, do some different things, take some liberal, liberal arts classes. How much of an impact did that have and an influence that allowed you to take that right turn and go out to California to do all these things with Texas A&M that you're doing now? Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, it's about self-confidence is mm-hmm. what the end result of all that is. And engineers are engineers are very good at what they what they know, and they're not very good at what they don't know. In fact, they're afraid of what they don't know. Typically, I think that's the DNA of an engineer. Mm-hmm. And by Stark encouraging a broader education and understanding about sociology, philosophy, economics, history, you know, he made me take this English history course, which was, ugh, but I did. <laughs> um, but but no, it's true. And so and so, for example, in my job now as a CEO, what do I do? I marshal resources for my company. I give presentations of what we do to people that might buy the product or just need to be made aware. I wrote a book, for goodness sakes. Engineers typically don't write books. Um, I I hire people, so I have to make people judgments. Sadly, I have to fire people occasionally. I have to motivate. So where? In uh, you know nuclear physics 101, do they teach any of that? They don't. 
but you pick that up from life, but you can get some grounding in those basic liberal arts courses of sociology, philosophy, economics, and so forth. And um, in business school, they kind of put a bow on all that for me because I took a course in the second year. It's about, it's called, uh, here's a joke, it, 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 at Harvard, they call it power and influence. Sounds interesting, right? Yeah. And at, at Stanford, they call it touchy-feely, but it's the same <laughs> course. Um, and what you do is you study leadership and you read biographies, uh, David Rockefeller, Lyndon Johnson, uh, on and on and on. Um, and uh, you, uh, Robert Gates is a new one they do. Um, these are, you know, great leaders read biographies, if you look at it. And in, uh, Har Harvard and Stanford both have you do that. And uh, I'm kind of lost now, but it, it's... It's what you have to do. It, it, anyway, that liberal arts, the ability to read and understand those things and to extend it gave me the self-confidence uh, to make that right turn, to, to move to California and not worry about things. I mean, I did run out of money and I had to call my parents for a loan and all that. But, you know, I was healthy and I was trying things. I was experimenting and That's right. I was I was I felt good. And you weren't, you weren't a delinquent and you were doing the right things. And, um, yeah. And, and, yeah. and we, what we were talking about was, you know, what allowed you to develop these leadership skills outside of the regular engineering programs that you took. Yeah. And I did. I ran the, I ran the, uh, amateur radio club at, at Texas A&M and I was, a uh, Stark put me on the MSC directorate, which is the student board, a board yeah. of directors there. Um, uh, you know, I was a Boy Scout, you know, patrol leader and all, all those things that happened along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, in high school, I was the drum major of a hundred piece band. And uh, it, uh, my, uh, a true test of leadership when I was mere 16 years old was one of the members of the band was killed in a car accident, like the mm -hmm. day that we were supposed to have a football game wow. in March. And um, it, you know. I remember Mr. Hoffman, uh, you know, coming to me and looking me in the eye, sort of, sort of, you know, as you can imagine, that staring deep into your brain. He says, uh, "We, we, we have a challenge here. Your job is to get these kids on the field so we can do the show. The show must go on." And wow. he turned and walked away, and I did. Um, mm. I don't remember how I did it, but I right. did. Probably because I stood at the door and led them out and said, "Folks, we're going to go do this because we have to do this. Martin needs us to do this. We got to go do it." Something like I don't know what I did, but yeah, um, that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's, yeah, it's about you got to have you got to have you got to have courage. You have self confidence. You know, uh, here's another. Just a, my dad was a machinist, so he worked his whole life. After the war, came one company. He took things apart and put them back together in a factory. There are no instruction books. You sort of figure it out as you go. And I would help my dad when I was a kid. I used to be his tool boy around the house and stuff. But what I have learned is that I can now take a machine apart and put it back together. There's no instruction manual. Uh, electronics, I can kind of tease it apart and figure out what's going on. It's because of self-confidence. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's plenty of times I didn't quite get it put back together correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, but mostly, I do. And as soon as you get the first one done, you say, hmm, I can do that. You know, as soon as you get those band members on the field and you do the, you know, the first step in the opening song, Hey, I can do this, and then it sort of get a flywheel effect, and right. ultimately, uh, uh, you know, getting elected chairman of the board, you uh, you got to set direction, and you got to you got to I call it you got to lean on people. You don't push people; you lean on people. You lean in the direction you want them to go, 
And every time they take a breath or every time they blink, they step that way. And um, it just works. Uh, but you have to set direction. You have to be clear. You have to be transparent. Uh, and then people will follow you. Can you talk in a little bit about that with, with digital resilience? Resilience is a, is a word that as I sit here and listen to you talk about all these amazing mm. things, it just shows up in your, in your DNA. It's just something that sort of defined your career. How do you, with, with your company, work in such a uh, critical space with, with so much fear and negativity and the unknown, right? There's so much unknown, like when will the next attack happen? It's all there. How do you create this culture that holds true to being resilient, yet still having fun, yet still celebrating success with your teammates like we talked about? Wow. I hadn't quite applied that word resilience, but you're right. Uh, in my mind, resilience means being prepared for the unexpected mm. and having the confidence to motor your way through it so that when you're finished with whatever the problem is, you're as good as you were, if not better. Always, um, you know, doing that self-analysis of like when it worked or it didn't work, you know what happened. That's very fascinating. Um, uh, and, you know, re resilience is being prepared. Mm -hmm. Resilience is uh, taking those courses, just thinking about what they mean. It's like staying educated. It's like knowing what the issues are today. Um, all the social stuff that's going on in this country with the Me Too movement. You, 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 you can't just sort of graduate from college and never read another newspaper. That's stupid. Um, but it's not just reading it. It's absorbing it. And how does it affect your life? And that that builds up a certain amount of resilience so that if somebody walked in my door with a brand new problem that I never heard about before, I say, okay, let's let's tease that apart. Let's let's break it down. Let's work on it here, there, and yonder, and eventually we'll we'll pull it together. And um, uh, it's very yeah. It's, resilience is about confidence, and confidence is about being prepared. Um, and you hope you never have to call on some of those deep things, but. You got to be prepared, and being prepared means being educated and 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 thoughtful. Absolutely, and you've you've piqued my interest about your your keynote compound interest. Can you tell us a little bit about that, where it comes from? And I don't want to give it all the way, but maybe kind of the thirty thousand foot view of what that is about. Yeah. So in you know in the world of mathematics, you know math is a pure thing. It's a great language. It defines precisely our world, and we humans have spent forever. Uh, Understanding the world based on math. And uh, if you were to have a crowd of giving a talk somewhere, 100 people, you'd say, okay, what's the most famous, what's the biggest, most powerful equation ever created by math? People say, oh, it's E equals MC squared. E equals MC squared. Einstein, he was the smartest guy. It was the most famous equation. The answer is no. The answer is compound interest. Compound interest says that if I have $100 and I put in my savings account and I'm getting I'm going to make the math easy. 5%. Next year, I'll have $105. And if I leave it there, I'll have 5% more of 105, which is almost 110, and on and on and on. And what happens is if you just wait long enough, you'll have $200. And if you wait long, but the point is if I had $100 now and I made the five, if I took the five out, I, I now I'm back to 100. The second year, I'm only going to have 105. The point is, Leaving the money in place, that would be the knowledge and experience that you've learned in that year. That's the interest that you've earned in your life applied to whoever you are. And you use that interest, again, it will multiply year after year after year, just like money does in a savings account. 
And one year, 5% is not much. Wait around 10 years and see what 5% gets you or 20 years and see what. So, but you have to be reflective. You have to think about what that 5% gave you. If you take it out and use it in a transaction, it's gone. So interesting. I probably did a little bit of that when I made that right turn and moved to California. I, I checked. I took a lot of money off the table, right? Uh, not really. Sure, I took off. You know, can I, can, I, uh, can I integrate fixed law? Can I solve these problems? No. But the leadership examples, the self-confidence examples, the solving problem examples, all that I learned as an engineer, I've applied to different kinds of problems. So I just kind of took all that learnings, if you will, and applied them to different things. And the, and the liberal arts part, the how people behave, the economics, rational beings, and all those things, Maslow's hierarchy, all that stuff works across no matter which path you pursue. That is always in your compound interest forever if you know it and use it. Well, I love that. Now, before I ask you the last question, Ray, would it be okay if you kind of tell us where um, our listeners can find out more uh, about the book, find out more about uh, Red Seal um, on social media, website, all of that? Sure. Okay. Um, my Twitter is at Ray Rothrock. You can just send me a note. Uh, the company is redseal.net, uh, not .com, but .net. And we're located in San Jose, California. Um, the book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, those usual places. I got a few extra here. If you email me, uh, I'm just Ray at RedSeal.net. If you email me, I'll sign it and send it to you. Um, and I'd love to hear your feedback on it when you when you when you read it. So uh, that's how you get it. I've I have published a lot of interesting papers uh, on uh, digital resilience and cyber, and I would encourage you just do a little. Google search on me and, and digital resilience. And I've published one for West Point, for example, mm -hmm. uh, lessons from the Maginot line, which pops up pretty frequently and stuff like that. So I've, I've tried to, you know, broaden the conversation. And so there's a lot out there that you can look up about me. You know, along those lines, how many times have you appeared and testified before Congress on this subject? Uh, well, I've been there uh, four times, okay. but for different subjects. Uh, I was there as a venture capitalist. Uh, I was uh, in when my leadership role there. We got some laws passed. I was there as an energy advocate, a nuclear energy advocate, and I was there once as a cybersecurity advocate. Uh, so I've had different different roles along the way. Okay. Well, and that leads right into my last question. And I apologize ahead of time because I did not prepare you for this, but. It's it's a two part question, and I've got. I'm really looking forward to your answer. But what is it that you would like your legacy to be? And here's why I ask that. I, I really believe in eulogy virtues as opposed to resume virtues. And, and you know, obviously Stephen Covey, beginning with the end in mind. And I think legacy is so significant. Then after you tell us what you would like your legacy to be, at what point in your career did you start thinking about that? Wow. Oh well, I haven't really thought much about legacy. Mm -hmm. I've had a few conversations of late. Uh, the book really brought a lot of people to me that I had met and they asked kind of these questions. So I've thought a little bit about it. You know, uh, my legacy would be, and I work hard on this one, if, if you want to go to college and get an education, go. Unfortunately, money holds people back. And I would love it if I could figure out how to pay for everybody's college. Uh, beyond high school, whatever, whatever you want to call it, the, the sort of getting you out. Because my legacy would be that if you can imagine it, if you can have a vision about it, you can probably do it. 
but you need some tools, you need some skills. And I would love, my legacy would be that I helped enable one kid, a hundred kids, a thousand kids, 10,000 kids, whatever, uh, to, to do that. And I, I've been working on that and, and maybe, you know, maybe it'll work. And one of those kids will remember uh, that scholarship he got from me or something and he'll pay it forward like I did with Mr. Stark and Mr. Hoffman and a few other names I've suggested, but that's, it's really, we just, we just, we just have to be an educated populace to do the right things. That's fantastic. And, and you, that's something that you've just started thinking about recently. That's not something, because the reason I ask is, you know, we work, you know, now with today's workforce, right? And we start talking about millennials and Gen Z's and they want their jobs mm-hmm. to have meaning and they want their jobs to have meaning, know that they're valued, they mm-hmm. know their work is important. Yeah. And I think one of the, the ways we do that as we lead them is get emotional attachment. One of the ways to get emotional attachment. Yeah with them is to talk about their legacy. Are you going to leave, you know, going back to, to our brand, the athletics of business, are you going to leave your Jersey in a better place? And, and how would you encourage the younger folks to really start thinking in those terms? Wow. Uh, boy, that's a good one. Um, well, I'll tell you, legacy is not about your job. Legacy is about your soul and um, your job is a means to an end. And the end is, what do you want your soul to be? No, what do you, you know, what do you want on your, on your tombstone, I guess is another cheesy way to say it. Um, but it's about, you know, and there's another cheese. When I was a boy scout, we had this little motto. It says, you know, when you go camping, you know, take only photographs and leave only footsteps. And um, it, so legacy's kind of, you know, take nothing, uh, but leave, leave a picture, leave a vision. And um, that's your soul. And that's what you, that's what people remember. Oh, I may be remembered for working at Ben Rock or Yankee or something. At the end of the day, I hope people remember that I enabled other people to make the world better. And uh, I think you need to think about that in your, in in your work, in your job and uh, the world around you. You know, um, Mr. Stark used to say now, you know, wherever you go, you want to make sure that you, you know, keep your skirt clean. (laughs) <laughs> and that was sort of a cliche from those days. Maybe it's a Jersey yeah. in your world, but yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you, you can't, you, know, you, you can't have a positive legacy if you don't keep your skirt clean. And so you got to think about these things that the world's not a transaction. A job is not a transaction. Your soul is not a transaction. It's a, it's a, it's a continuous arc full of many transactions. And, um, I'm not answering your question as precise as you may want it, but, well, but that's how I think about it. I'm going to tell you what I think about. It. I think Ray, I think you nailed the answer, and I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. That was that was fantastic, and I cannot thank you enough for for joining us and spending uh, as much time with us uh, as you did, Ray. Thank you so much. Thank you, and I'm thrilled. And 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 really, Ray at Redfield.net. I hope somebody sends me a note from this podcast. Thank you again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ray. Thank you for listening to The Athletics of Business. Be sure to give us a rating and review so we know how we're doing. For more information about the show, visit theathleticsofbusiness.com. Now, get out there, think, act, and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness.